Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's VentureForth podcast, I'm very excited to welcome Jeff Clavier, Managing Partner at SoftTech VC. As one of the original so-called super angels or micro VCs, Jeff is a legend in the valley and has seen it all. Jeff knows how to pick winners, and some of his most notable investments include Mint.com, Fitbit, Eventbrite, Hired, Postmates, Poshmark, About.me, and many, many more. SoftTech most recently raised $150 million across two funds and is focused on seed and growth stage investments, but occasionally writes larger checks for the most promising companies. I'm intrigued to hear about Jeff's background and about what he looks for in successful founders that helps him pick out the big winners. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. I'm so excited to join you today. Awesome. Well, I'd love to start by hearing a little about your background and the road leading to SoftTech VC. Sure. So born, raised, educated in France, have a Master of Science in Computer Science and uh, a research degree in uh, Distributed Computing. Did a startup in the financial services market that brought Sun workstations in trading floors in the late 80s when those workstations were the most powerful gear you could put on a desktop. I was um, I was the CTO of the company and we ended up being acquired by Reuters in 1992. I stayed with Reuters for a while, built a bunch of products, services, infrastructure for them. I had developers in Paris, New York, London, Palo Alto. And after going through the Euro transition, the millennium, which went fine, I moved to Silicon Valley almost uh, 17 years ago to become um, a VC with the um, corporate venture arm of Reuters, uh, which was the um, called the Reuters Greenhouse Fund. Those guys had invested in Yahoo, Verisign, Fund.com, a bunch of Web 1.0 companies. And I stayed with them for four years before I saw the emergence of this new generation of companies that was at the time called Web 2.0. And, you know, they had beautiful sort of dynamic interfaces and they were very capital efficient trying to build a product for, you know, just a few hundred thousand dollars. And... What's bizarre uh, when you look at the activity at seed stage today is that 13 years ago, there was just a handful of people actually interested in in funding these guys or gals and um, decided to uh, essentially have a go at it. So left Reuters, started SoftTech and played full-time angel investor for about three years. That's how I became one of the so-called super angels with a, a small fund because it was just, you know, my my money. So my my wife was the original LP of um, of SoftTech, <laughs> and uh, made twenty four investments. You mentioned Mint. Truvio was my very first investment. You know the first uh, video search engine before YouTube even existed, and um, had a streak of um, of successes that led me to uh, raise one of the first micro VC funds, or what's now called micro VC funds. Uh, in two thousand seven, it was what we call Fund Two. Uh, it was a $15 million fund that was raised in about eight weeks in the summer of um, of 2007. That fund made 65 investments. Uh, that's the fund that seeded Fitbit, Eventbrite, SendGrid, 
Wildfire and a bunch of other companies that um, were successful. So it's a very successful fund. And then raised uh, in 2010, one of the like real micro VC fund with a real VC-like portfolio construction strategy. So you invest for a certain uh, ownership target, you uh, reserve for Series N, Series B, Prorata, and so on and so forth. So it was Fund 3, which did um, 55 investments. That's the one that did hired, Postmates, Pushmark, Clever, Class Dojo, and, and a bunch of others. Then we uh, raised the um, bigger brother of Fund 3, Fund 4, $85 million, 2013 to 2016 kind of vintage. Um, that one is, you know, still work in progress. Uh, we've, we've invested in 42 companies. So we, as we grew uh, older, we decided to concentrate our portfolio a little bit. So that, that portfolio only has 42 companies, but those companies we own a lot more of. So average ownership is 7 to 10%. And uh, as you mentioned, we raised 150 million early 2016, 100 for the seed fund, 50 for a, uh, an opportunity fund that only invests in existing portfolio companies when they reach uh, sort of a higher degree of maturity, uh, series C, series D typically. And so now out of fund five, we write uh, an average of a million dollar check we take seven to ten percent ownership, and uh, we are part of, and we're happy to lead co-lead or follow in a seed round that will be typically two to three million for the um, software company and three to four million for a hardware company. Wow, that is an amazing history. Thank you so much for sharing that. I kind of want to touch on the sort of super angel micro VC thing. Um, those titles sort of have gone away since, but. I know that, uh, so I work with Howard Linson, um, and Tom Peterson at Social Leverage. Yes. And, uh, and, and they were also sort of included under that umbrella. And so I read in a, a 2011 post from Soft Tech's blog uh, that the title of Super Angel really was a bit of a misnomer since you were investing other people's money. Was this always the case or, um, in that, I guess, original fund, was that an angel fund? Yeah. So. The Super Angel moniker, which was invented back in 2006 for a piece that Business 2.0, which is now defunct, sort of wrote about, you know, the 13 Super Angels and they had a bunch of people who were um, investing their own capital into um, early stage startups. So angels invest their own capital, VCs invest other people's money, right? OPM. And at the beginning, for the first three years, Fund One was essentially uh, investments are made out of our balance sheet. We made a little bit of money at, uh, at Reuters when we sold our company FX and, and then afterwards. But we, we had made, you know, bank like some of my friends had done by being very successful entrepreneurs or being part of early stage successes. And so for us, the uh, 250K that we had allocated to this pocket of investing was actually very, very meaningful to us. It would have been trouble if I had lost uh, everything. And so. The super angel thing sort of worked for me until 2007 when I raised my first institutionally backed fund because then I started investing other people's money. Obviously, my money was also in there, but it was largely other people's. And I think where people still used super angel as a denomination for what I was doing and a few of my friends were doing is because we're still doing angel type investments. So as an angel, I would be writing a 25 to 50k check in a bunch of startups and rarely, you know, following on. As the uh, GP of Fund2, I was writing 100 to 250k checks and I was rarely following on. 
So it was kind of an angel strategy applied to an early stage fund, which is why I said, well, you know, fund one is definitely a super angel thing. Fund two is kind of a super angel strategy. And fund three was a real VC type strategy on the low end of check sizes, which is why we call them uh, micro VCs. I think my my friend Mike Maples came up with the term micro VC because we had, you know, a portfolio construction, which was fairly well defined. We had a target of ownership in those companies. We we're trying at that time to get three to five percent. I started to actually lead rounds and take board seats in the course of fund three. And we had an explicit follow-on strategy where if a company was successful, we would definitely write a check at Series A, a check at Series B, and, and sometimes a partial check at Series C. The Series C bit has been replaced by our opportunity fund, uh, Softec VC+, Plus, which allows us to write two, four, five, six more potentially uh, million-dollar check. So that's why... At the beginning, as we ramped the size of the funds and the size of the investments, people still confused a little bit super angels and micro VCs. Now it's pretty clear. If you invest other people's money, then you'll, you can't be a super angel. And there are very few super angels left because most people who've been successful investors have been raising funds because it's, it's definitely the, uh, the thing du jour. Joshua Schachter, uh, my good friend and limited partner, so someone who invests with, um, in, in us and with us, is actually one of the few super angels left because he still invests, you know, his own money 10 years later. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Like, I've interviewed tons of investors who've been part of these larger funds, but less often to investors who are deeply involved in their own fundraising. Can you talk about what goes into raising a fund and how size and stage affects those challenges? Sure. So, and, and you know, you, you learn by doing, and it's typically sort of horrible. Of, um, of everything I love doing about my job, fundraising is the thing <laughs> which I'm, I'm least, you know, sort of enamored with. So when I did Fund 2, which was, you know, April, May, of 2007 is when the conversations with with potential limited partners sort of started. There was there was no blueprint for what we were doing. There was no model. Josh Koppelman, who's really patient zero in the whole micro VC world, had raised a fund on the East Coast, uh, first round Capital One, which was the first you know real sort of fund that defined almost sort of the model in Silicon Valley. There were a few of us that were sort of about to um, to do the same thing. And so when we were talking to institutional investors, they were like, why the hell would you raise a $15 million fund? That doesn't make any sense. And so I was lucky to find friends essentially who were supportive and interested in, in backing what I was doing. So I collected a, uh, a bunch of 100K checks from friends and, and you know, I limited the uh, the check size to 100K because I said, look, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, so I don't want to lose too much of your cash. <laughs> so I sort of told people, don't give me more than 100K. But then I had two institutional in- investors. One was Norway's Venture Partner, which, you know, is a VC firm that actually backed us to get exposure to the seed world that was developing at the time. And... Then a um, small fund of fund, Darwin Venture Partners, also wrote a, um, a large check size 
given that I had very limited track record. So I raised $12 million in change from institutionals and then $3 million from angels and, and that was it. As I progressed through the history of, of Softech and raising you know bigger funds, so 15, 55, 85, 150, we basically started to uh, institutionalize our um, LP base. And now we have about 20 institutional LPs that have anywhere from, you know, three, four million to 20 million exposure to our funds. I would say if you try and raise a small fund, these days you have people raising two, three, five million dollar pre-seed funds. So they invest before us. We write, you know, million dollar check as part of a two to three million dollar round size. That's that's what I define as seed. Pre-seed would be a half a million, 750K kind of friends and family type round that only invest at almost ideation stage. So you back a couple of founders and then you help them figure out the concept and build the initial product. Um, for those pre-seed funds, you can basically go around to individuals and try and get a 50 100k check and that's how you build the initial infrastructure of your financing because it's hard to get any institutional for less than a few million dollars and they never want to be more than five or ten percent of your fund so the math just doesn't work and also very few people want to back uh, an emerging manager unless you have a real track record so how to unlock that is demonstrate two things one is that you have a unique theme because there are so many funds, you know, three to 400 seed funds now, that it's very difficult to be a generalist fund. Like we are a generalist fund. We invest in SaaS B2B enterprise. We do connected devices, marketplaces, a little bit of monetized consumer, and then frontier tech, you know, things like uh, AI, AR, VR, robotics, autonomy, and, and things like that. And we can't afford to do so because we've been around for a long, long time. And people sort of know that we've had successes in all those categories. So we can afford not being super focused and have a, what I would call a shtick. But if you're starting something today, you need to have that shtick in order for founders to basically recognize that it's worth them coming to you for capital, but most importantly, advice and value add. So you can actually help them get to the next stage, right? This is the job of early stage investors is take a company where it is and help get it to the next stage of financing, next stage of maturity, next stage of of scale. Definitely. I've had uh, the opportunity to be part of the conversation and help out wherever I can as Social Leverage raises Fund 3. And so it's been really eye-opening to, to see that process. So yeah, that's been really neat. And it's frustrating. It takes a long time. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that this is not as glamorous as it as a lot of people make it seem especially when you see uh, so many funds out there raising you know these big funds and and then you got the Andreessen's of the world got like uh, over a billion dollars in each round so on that topic there seems to be a tons of seed stage capital in the market these days um, as i mentioned like there's so many funds raising 50 to 150 million dollar funds to do that what makes softtech different and what is the greatest benefit that founders gain from partnering with you Sure. And yes, I would say there's a very large number of funds that are raising 10, 20, 25 million in that sort of range. And then they come back after a couple of years to raise a bigger fund. And so you still have like the 
the number of funds above 75 million, which is typically what you get to with, you know, fund three or fund four, is still fairly limited. There's, you know, a couple of dozen, but it's really where is the sweet spot for a lot of the early entrants. So to answer your question on, on SoftTech, I think um, a few things. One is, you know, the, the track record and the brand that we've built over the past 13 years help us, A, attract founders, B, attract, you know, photo on financing, which is, as I said, one of the most important things that we help our founders with, which is get them to um, to great a large Series A with a great, you know, Series A investor who will help them get to the next level, which is basically uh, build a company and, and raise a Series B. We will help essentially on all fronts, whether it's building the product, building the team, uh, building the infrastructure, helping them to think about early the early stages of scale, provide them with a very clear roadmap of what they need to hit in terms of numbers and, and type of team you know, to um, forcibly sort of raise a, um, uh, a Series A. We, we never know what it takes, but we have a good hunch of what what is needed. And so we help them sort of get on that journey so that when we feel they're ready, we're going to bring them to visit with VCs. And we know exactly who will be the right VC for a hardware company, for a software company, for a marketplace company, because you don't always sort of talk to the same, the same firms and the same partners, so that we maximize the likelihood of raising a large Series N or average Series A is $10 million with uh, some of the best firms in, um, in the market. And it's our ability to do that, which is recognized in the market that makes us sort of different. A lot of founders will come to us and say, well, you know, I'm raising, say, $2 million and I have a million or a million and a half already, you know, sub-circle, but I don't have a lead, right? Yep. And the job of the lead, yes, is to define the terms and price the round, but that's nothing compared to actually sitting down with the entrepreneur on a weekly, bi-weekly basis and actually helping her or him to build their company. And that's what we do. We, we're happy to lead, co-lead, follow. Actually, for us, we, we don't have any ego. We don't need to be in the lead position. We just want very strong investors who can help uh, the company will offer a ton of value add. And if the founder wants us to do so, we'll take the board seat and you know we'll stay on the board until the closing of the Series A or the closing of the Series B. We will sort of deploy our resources. We'll sort of do... and. We have zero ego, so we'll be happy to do anything that we can to help uh, a company be successful. Might be, you know, helping with interviews, trying to convince team members or executives to um, to join the company. That could be, you know, opening a Rolodex to um, find potential sort of customers. Like anything that we can do to help the company is what we do. Which is why, over time, we have compressed a little bit the size of the portfolio so that we can actually go deeper and spend more time with our portfolio founders. And right now, you know, we're going to see roughly 3,000 companies a year. I mean, two to 3,000, depending on the year. And we're going to invest in 12 to 15. So we say no 99.5% of the time, which means that each of us, you know, partners, there's three of us in the partnership, will take on four to five new companies a year. Right. Yeah, I've definitely had uh, some of those conversations even even this week with founders. So so that's really interesting to see uh, sort of your take on it. And obviously, like any company would, I think, be fortunate to have you on their cap table. <laughs> so now that you raised that latest fund, uh, you mentioned that it was a generalist fund. But are there any sectors that you're sort of bullish and in investing in today? And perhaps more interesting sectors that you're cautious of? Well, we're cautious, we're cautious as... Um 
as a team in general. So um, I think we would pretty much sort of look at anything that has, you know, super strong founders with a unique insight, like a, a differentiated product and a, a real market opportunity. So we have, we sort of can convincibly draw a path of how the company gets to $100 million or north of $100 million in, uh, in revenue, net revenue. So uh, I sort of mentioned the sectors we invest in. SaaS B2B enterprise um, is a lot of what we do. So whether it's software infrastructure, whether it's vertical SaaS, whether it's you know the application stack, whether it's uh, developer tools, we'll do all of this. And we've had very successful companies and outcomes in all those sectors. On the back of our success with Fitbit, we've done uh, a lot of connected devices and we continue to do so. In the last couple of years, we've added companies which are more on the industrial side and we're super excited about what we have in the category. We continue doing marketplaces, both B2C and B2B. We do less and less consumer. Like, you know, I started in consumer side, but these days very hard for us to be excited with like anything social networky or photo sharing e or messaging e except if it's really a very specific sort of application where we see an opportunity to monetize. So that's what we call that monetized consumer. And then where I'm super excited because that's where I spend a lot of my time is sort of the new areas of frontier stuff. So whether it's, you know, artificial intelligence. So the, the theme is rise of the machine. So whether it's robots, AI, ARVR, autonomy, whether it's uh, cars, trucks, but it could be also, you know, robots. There's a, there's a ton of things that we look at where, you know, they're really at the edge of our comfort zone. So recently, uh, I've invested in a uh, next-generation microprocessor, which is a first for me, and I'm super excited about that. But we looked at a quantum computer, and that was just too much. The, the key challenge for us seed investors is that we always have a finite runway and, you know, limited capital to actually prove a company. Like, whether it's two, three, or three, four million, it's still, you know, you have roughly 18 to 24 months to prove yourself. And for a lot of edge science or really expensive type experiments like quantum computing, seed financing is not really sort of the, the way to go. So I passed on that quantum computing, you know, opportunity. Uh, looking at some material science deals, looking at a bit of bioinformatics, I think that we've done, you know, a decent amount of healthcare type investments over the years. And I think that biotech and bioinformatics is really uh, at the edge of a revolution. And there will be a lot of interesting opportunities and companies being formed in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. So that's the edge stuff. And, and we sort of try and balance the amounts and the risk that we take, where I would say 80% of, of our portfolio goes into our companies or portfolio are in sectors where we sort of understand the outcome and the science and how it's done. It's basically execution risk and figuring out sales and marketing and 20% is sort of batshit crazy where you don't even know the science is going to work at scale and you know we're comfortable doing that because over the years we've proven to our limited partners that eight was not such an insane strategy and we actually sort of are pretty good at, at spotting trends and teams that can actually sort of build category defining products so that's that's sort of what we do what we don't do E-commerce, we just suck at e-commerce, like 
my partner Steph brought us Dollar Chef Club when they were raising their seed round and we said, but it's just a marketing play, it's just a you know stupid video. I mean Michael Durban is a genius, but and the video was great, but you know, we didn't see any defensibility there and a billion dollars later, you know, clearly <laughs> it's, uh, it's on Steph's uh, entire portfolio. I think we have a we have an issue with travel. We've we've looked at dozens of deals in the travel space over the years and we've done a couple and and you know we just don't get travel i think so there there's a few discrete categories like that that are hard for us to get excited about or to be convinced about but otherwise we'll we'll be very broad in what we do and a it's sort of super interesting and intellectually but also from just a uh, uh, risk distribution. It's a way for us to um, mitigate, you know, where we put our eggs. They're definitely not in the same basket. Definitely. Yeah, and so actually, you mentioned Dollar Shave Club and, you know, kind of passing on that opportunity. And I was curious about how social proof plays into your decision making and whether that has ever caused you to miss a deal that you, I guess, now regret. What do you mean by social proof? Who else is investing or, right. or exactly. how much? So we have a we have a rule at Softag is that we don't care at all about who else is investing. We actually never ask founders about who else is investing. If there is a lead and a term sheet and that would that would follow, obviously we ask you know who that is and what the terms are because that is important. But otherwise we don't care. We we make our um, investment decisions independently. That's why we lead a ton of our um, deals is that we end up just being the one that set the terms and then rally other investors. And often companies come to us and they have a little bit of their round field. We commit to invest, we put down a term sheet and then within like a few days, everything is oversubscribed because people sort of see us investing as, as a positive sign for the, uh, the potential fate of the company. Definitely. I'm guessing that social proof certainly influences uh, other firms' decisions, having soft tech on board. So you recently did a talk at the Nuco conference about startup founder fundraising. Can you yes. talk a little bit about how green but promising founders can determine evaluation and dilution and, and the other issues they may face when raising for the first time? Sure. So I think that the, the thing to understand is at the end of the day, you're going to leave a piece of the company on the table every time you raise capital and you have to be thoughtful about you know how much of that dilution you um you because it's more about dilution than valuation valuation just is a byproduct of the dilution and it's really sort of a measure of the value you get sometimes people would get hung up on well should i take a seven million pre or eight million pre or nine million pre sort of valuation it doesn't really matter what matters is what's the dilution that you incur so a 20 percent dilution is better than a 30 percent dilution but if you have a say a party round of you know 20 people giving you two million dollars for 20 percent dilution or Sequoia Capital, I'm just giving extremes, or Sequoia Capital that offers you, you know, the same amount for 30% dilution, you'd better take Sequoia because, you know, their help will be able to really push you further in terms of how you can hire, how you can build the company, all the advice, the brand associated and so on and so forth, right? So typically, um, a seed round will be 20, 25% dilution. You will build an option pool that is, you know, depending on what you need to hire the uh, the depth of the team executives and so on and so forth between 10 and 15% uh, post round and before that you may have done incubator you may have done a pre seed round and 
pre-seed rounds should be in the um, 10, 15 percent max. And then when you raise a Series A, you look at you know another 25 percent dilution plus a potential re-up of the option pool. So if you sort of stack up all this dilution, then the founders will end up already you know after the pre-seed or accelerator, the seed round, and the uh, the Series A, they will end up with less than 40% of the company. So you have to be really mindful where from whom you raise and, and how much you raise to um, to do what. Our advice to entrepreneurs is always think about what you need to uh, clear the next milestone. And so that's why our rounds tend to be larger and a little bit more dilutive, but they will sort of get you to milestones which are higher and will allow you to raise larger sort of Series A's and, and Series B's. The valuation is always uh, set by the market. So as a founder, you shouldn't, unless you have someone giving you a term sheet saying the valuation is blah, then you shouldn't sort of set the terms. You should just say, well, you know, if, if someone asks you, you have any valuation expectations, you just say the market will just price the opportunity based on uh, everything we've done and, and the potential of the opportunity. And sometimes uh, investors will be comfortable giving a higher valuation and invest more money for the same dilution, say, you know, $3 million on 12 pre-15 posts. If you are looking at a very experienced team that has already built a product and has gotten a little bit of, of revenue proof points, and if it's like super early and very risky and the team is green, then, you know, you may end up with a six pre-valuation uh, or less and raise, you know, $2 million for a 25% dilution. And so all this math is something that founders have to... Um, to get used to and be comfortable with, but I, I will uh, repeat that until I can't speak. It's all about you know the strength of the investor syndicate and the value that they can deliver th um, through their investment. Capital is a commodity. I mean, at least in Silicon Valley, because right. you have so many sources, so many sources of capital that the difference is really what are the uh, the different sort of things that your founders or your investors can do for, for their founders. Uh, obviously, in other parts of the country where capital is under commodity, then raising capital is the first is the first objective, and then getting value is sort of the cherry on the top of the cake. In Silicon Valley, in New York, Boston, Seattle, and a few other centers, it's really about the value add. Right. You mentioned, actually, that there's a ton of capital here in Silicon Valley, and that it's kind of a commodity. And there's a lot of people doing angel investments or raising small funds now from colleagues, for instance, like people coming out of Facebook or, um, you know, who will be coming out of Uber, Airbnb and, and the like. How is that affecting the prices and, and how much money people are investing or, or actually raising? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, I used essentially that sentence in a report. So I just sent to um, our... 100 plus uh, limit partners or um, reports for Q4 2016. And I, I always write a, a memo, a page and a half memo about either something I want to talk about or sort of the outlook for the, uh, for the year. And I basically said, um, because of the overflow of capital at seed stage, we face a lot of, it's not really sort of competition per se in terms of getting us to miss the deals or lose the deals whenever we express interest in, in investing, you know, 90% of the time uh, we get to invest. But 
we don't always invest at the price which we would have you know set for the company so it's like good news is i get to invest bad news is i get to invest at someone else's price who was willing to write you know a check at a much higher valuation than i would and i think that it's part the fact that we you know we've been around for a long long time my first investment was at 3 pre and you know we made uh we did really really well on that um pre pre investment and I just know how hard it is to return, you know, a fund multiple times. And if ever your initial sort of valuation is too high, that's going to hurt your your performance. And so I can I can already tell you, our funds, the most recent funds, are handicapped from a performance basis compared to our earlier funds because the valuations at which we we invest are just much higher, right? Uh, just mechanically and mathematically. Our, our funds won't do as well because the, um, the valuations at which we exit haven't really sort of increased in a material way compared to uh, 12 or 10 years ago, whereas the entry valuations have actually materially increased. But it is what it is. And so the way we, we mitigate that is we no longer really think about purely the valuation. We think about the actual ownership. And so we go for 7 to 10% ownership and, you know, that means that for us, whether we write a million dollar check for 10% or an 800k check for 10% or $1.2 million check for 10%, it's not the same, but it's kind of, you know, the same. And that's why we have bigger funds as well. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting chicken and egg question, which is, did we end up with much larger funds because the the the, um, the rounds became larger, or did the rounds become larger because everyone had bigger funds and therefore wanted to invest more? Right, definitely. I've been seeing more and more, and so it's really interesting to to get your insights on that. So, actually, on and this is my last question prior to the quick fire round, but uh, I'm interested to see your thoughts on whether Silicon Valley can be replicated in in other markets, whether it's you know domestically in the states or or even internationally, because it can't just be the lack of VCs and, and funds and stuff uh, like Brad Feld's got some interesting thoughts on this, but I'm interested to hear uh, what, what your thoughts are. So my, my take is that it's actually sort of not the right way to ask the question because I don't think that Silicon Valley per se can be replicated anywhere. Because if you think about what is Silicon Valley, it's just, it's just this crazy concentration of two like world-class uh, universities, Stanford and Berkeley, 40 years or 50 years of developments of world-changing sort of companies uh, over the years since the 1950s, 1960s. And, you know, that sort of concentration of capital, talent, experience, expertise, and risk appetite, that is just has built this ecosystem in sort of a unique way. And so... If your goal is to replicate Silicon Valley, you will fail. And I've said that to many governors, many mayors, many heads of states, many because that's just not the way to think about it. The question is, how can you replicate an ecosystem that actually fosters innovation, right? And it doesn't need to be at the scale of or magnitude of Silicon Valley to be successful and useful. And so, you know, Back in 2009, 2010, we started to invest in uh, in the New York ecosystem, which, in my view, sort of really developed on the back of the financial crisis because suddenly you had tens of thousands of developers in the New York market that 
could no longer be hired by the banks because the banks didn't have any any capital. And so suddenly you could actually find developers in the market and build a startup ecosystem around it. Boston is certainly sort of back, and we, we started investing in Boston um, three years ago. And so we look at Boston as if it was sort of a sort of a New York, sort of East Coast kind of makeup for us. And that's, you know, 10, 15% of, um, of our portfolio is there. Then we actually are very concentrated from a geo perspective. So we do Silicon Valley, uh, New York, Boston, and then we actually look at Canada as a really interesting sort of ecosystem in development where we've done five investments to date over the, over the, um, the past, you know, few years. But we don't, we barely sort of do anything in the middle. And it's not that we're not interested to look at interest in, in companies there, but the ecosystem is so nascent and there isn't this easy series A, series B pipeline that we know we can have in the sectors where we invest that it's, it makes it sort of worth for us uh, to sort of look at uh, opportunities. It's, you know, it's kind of interesting because over the, that, that's a very sort of Silicon Valley centric sort of view of the world, which is being challenged, I would say, in the last two, three years by interesting developments in Seattle, Portland, uh, certainly Boulder. We've done a bunch of deals there. We just haven't done anything for a while. Uh, Texas and so on and so forth. The problem is, you know, for us to find the best Atlanta company, for us to find the best somewhere in the Midwest sort of company, we'd have to spend time in the ecosystem to uh, get to know people, build those relationships, get, you know, the deal, the deal flow pump going. And it's just not worth our while because if you look at the companies we find or the companies that find us in, in the different ponds where we fish, we think that we just have a, uh, the best return on time kind of, um, yeah, return on time sort of uh, ratio. Definitely. Cool. Well, with that, I'd love to kind of jump into our quickfire round or get to know a little bit about you. And so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say a statement and, um, you know, really first thing that jumps into your mind, be great to hear that. All right. Let's start out with, uh, what is your favorite book? Uh, June. I've read it many times. Uh, it takes a while because I read all the, um, the different books of the four or five, but that's this sort of, science fiction sort of fantasy world which which i am um, always sort of fascinated by definitely i i actually i haven't read dune but i'm a huge sci-fi um fan myself so i, I can certainly appreciate that uh, uh what band or artist would you travel 500 miles to see you know that's a good question i don't think i would travel 500 miles for any band or <laughs> or artist um i would you know i would go to a concert here but yeah, I wouldn't travel. No. Yeah. I would. I, oh no, no. Hang on. It's not true. Technically, it's not true. I actually, travel to New York to see Hamilton. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so, definitely. Okay. So I guess Hamilton, but um, that was the only one. Awesome. I'm, I'm actually here in New York first Oktoberfest now, and uh, Tom Peterson uh, actually saw Hamilton. Uh, it was like two days ago. So uh, that's something I need to see at some point in my life. Oh yeah, it's absolutely worth it. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, so now, now you've got like the world's greatest job, but what was your dream job as a kid? So when I was, uh, 12 years old, I wanted to be a chef. Uh, I wanted to go to cooking schools and be a chef. And we went to see a career advisor at my, uh, at my school, my middle school and said, Hey, you know, this is what I have in mind. And 
the guy sort of looked at my grades and he saw that I was a straight A student and he looked at my mother and said, this is just no way we're going to let him go to cooking school. He just should do like, you know, like the best students, math, physics, German, uh, English, Latin, and, and that's it. And so that's what I did. And so we'll never know whether I would have been a crappy cook or a world-class chef. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, you're French, right? So, I mean, yes, some of the, I was born French. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, like some of the best chefs in the world are are from France, and certainly like the uh, most sophisticated cuisine too. So, uh, I have no doubt that you could you know, maybe swap places with like Eric Repair. Well, you know, I think I'm 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 happy where I am, and yeah. I can sort of cook for my friends. So, I think it's not too bad. But that's that's kind of interesting. It's it's in France, you have either like, in order to go to professional school, you have to fail at traditional school, which is sort of really stupid. I, I like the German approach uh, much better. Uh, what, uh, actually, now that that's interesting, because I love cooking myself. What is the German approach to that? Well, the German approach is more like to, um, to consider that whether you go to traditional studies or professional studies is there's no notion of one being a, a second grade citizen, uh. and so, you know, um, they, they foster and, and really encourage kids to go to learn a trade the same way they want you to go and learn, you know, math and physics and CS and so on and so forth. The, the issue in the French system is very, there's a, a clear set of courses and curriculum you have to go through. And so, so for example, the best students we're always sort of doing German as a first language, English as a second language, and Latin as a third language because they were given the best teachers. And so that's why I used to speak uh, German fluently and it's completely freaking useless. Whereas, you know, if I had learned English as a first language, maybe I wouldn't have that stupid accent. And second, I could have learned Spanish, which would be way more useful living in California. So it's really sort of um, very... It, it doesn't sort of give you a real sort of flexibility as to what you want to do. And we tried, you know, we tried to avoid that with our children. So when when he was in a junior in, in high school, our son went to sort of a um, school middle college where you basically sort of as a junior and senior in high school, you take college level courses, which means that you can actually have access to the entire curriculum of the college. And that gave him the ability to sort of see what he was truly passionate about. And as opposed to doing business like um, his mom or, or, you know, computer science like his dad, he's basically into political science and is arming, arming himself to become one day uh, an elected official. And I think that it's a great benefit to give kids this flexibility that I wish I had when I was younger. Oh, that's very fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, I, I, I like to learn new things, uh, about all things. Uh, and so that's definitely something that I wasn't aware of before, but that's very cool. So this is my last question, uh, before giving you the opportunity to, you know, plug anything that you like. Uh, but it's a little bit of a heavy hitter. Um, so if you could be the CEO of any company for one day, what company would that be and why? If I could be the CEO of any company for one day, which one would that be and why? It's interesting. Um, I, it's funny. I have a go at Twitter because it's 
it has so much potential, it feels so fucked up that I would really want to go undercover and see whether there is any sort of quick fix. I'm sure there's no quick fix, but I don't understand how it can be, you know, sort of in the state is where it has so much potential and so much importance. So like off the cuff, I would say Twitter. I definitely feel like like something Twitter could be much bigger and more valuable than it even is today. And for some reason, um, part time CEO or uh, and I'm sure in, in your one day as CEO of Twitter, you'd be a full time CEO. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems and like it's always, it's always way harder than, than than you think. And, you know, it's a bunch of very smart people who have been sort of working on this for a while. But it's just, you know, bizarre to see that that sort of asset uh, being a bit squandered. So but it's like, you know, the. Um, the workout person in me uh, would love to sort of just understand. So, but you know, I'm sure if you ask me tomorrow, I will have another one. Because uh, <laughs> if if I was if I wasn't working in the um, in the VC trade or in the startup trade, I would probably work in the wine trade. So I'm sure I can find like being Aubert de Villene, uh, who's the guy running Domaine de Harmonie Conti, would probably be a good gig for a day. <laughs> Interesting. Very cool. Uh, another sort of, I guess, being in California and, you know, uh, from France is just a appreciation of great wine. So I, I can certainly empathize with that. Oh, right. so, yeah. So those who know me know that, uh, wine is, uh, is my, is my number one passion. Oh, interesting. So why, why haven't you, um, pursued that at least casually, I guess, uh, winemaking? It's a, it's a great question. And I think it's very expensive. It takes a lot of time and my, my sort of dedication is really to my work and, and, and my family. And I'm, and I'm blessed to have, you know, a fantastic sort of wife who lets me work very, 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 very long hours without complaining. And, you know, I think that I just don't see where I would be able to carve out the time to properly and you know i don't do something to half-ass it if i do it i do it fully and, and i do it well so who knows I'm, I'm i'm turning 50 this year so maybe not uh for this decade but maybe to the next i don't know but you know i i definitely enjoy wine tasting and collecting a lot and so one thing i made i made to try and do one day is to um, pass a sommelier like that that's that's one thing on my bucket list might be like the the sum exam uh one day but you know when I don't know when uh, I would have would find the time, so I would I would need to um, just get more free time, which is nowhere near on the um, on the horizon. I did watch uh, Psalm and Psalm into the bottle on Netflix, and so um, it's pretty cool, huh? I, it's I, I really fascinating. Like yeah, they can pick out you know where wine, uh, you know the region, the 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 weather, the day that the you know it, it's just it's amazing, amazing talent. Well, it's amazing talent, but it's all about being able to take the different sort of um, inputs, which is the the nose of the wine, the, the look of the wine, and the taste of the wine, and have this sort of you know testing bank, which you only can build through tasting thousands and thousands and thousands of of different bottles to be able to sort of train your palate to recognize the different characteristics. So could it say like an excuse to actually drink even more? Uh, but, you know, just to be clear, you spit everything. Like my, my record, I think, is 150 wines in, um, in three hours, but you don't drink anything because otherwise you are under the table, you know, <laughs> after like a, an hour of the exercise. 
<laughs> Definitely. That's so cool. Um, and so I'd love to give you the opportunity to plug anything that you like or anything that you'd uh, want to impart as a last words with our listeners. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's always sort of super interesting for us to um, share our experience. The one thing which I've, I've always appreciated is that this is a community which is very supportive and, and we have uh, a general approach to try and help people want to join the industry. I think it's it's potentially the, what the new generation of, of VCGPs uh, have is that we don't try and be productive. We're trying, you know, uh, share with others our experience. I, I learned that from uh, from Brad Feld, who um, I've been very lucky to um, to be uh, a mentee of since the beginning of Softech, and I've really sort of benefited from from um, his friendship and and openness. Same thing, John Callahan. Same thing, Josh Koppelman. And therefore, because I, I I got so much out of it, I'm trying to to return the favor. And so you know, very often I will see wannabe GPs who are thinking about raising their fund and want some you know a bit of my time to just either validate a thesis that they have or an approach that they're taking or just explaining to them how they can actually one day get into venture, which is which is sort of this weird industry, which is largely kind of a cooptation game where you basically get in venture because someone thinks that you will be good at it and gives you a shot, which is exactly what happened to me 17 years ago. Yeah, I've uh, been fortunate to kind of been a beneficiary of how much the community gives back and and even even in just having this interview today with you has been a really great opportunity and and i want to thank you for taking the time and also you know hopefully one day share a bottle of wine with you that would be great Joe. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it awesome yeah i you know actually just one more thing the very last thing i promise is that you know i i tend to like to research guests before going into the interview so it's not sort of cold and um i'm here it's in new york first Oktoberfest, and you know talk to some of our gps and other investors in the room um and everybody really emphasized how awesome it is to work with you and that just even personally one of the nicest people they've ever met. And so I really want to thank you for being on the show today and uh, just being such a, a, a great guy. <laughs> well, it's, um, um, I'm blushing. Thank you so much for the uh, very kind words. And yeah, well, look, at the end of the day, being a dick to people and not trying to be sort of someone who's supportive and helpful uh, doesn't get you anywhere, right? At the same time, you know, I want to be clear that if you talk to my founders, I think they will tell you that um, I'm super supportive. I'm always there for them, but I'm also tough. I'm also sort of demanding. I'm also trying to get them to be better. And I think that's what you need to find the right balance between being the shoulder on which people can cry or like the, the person who's going to do everything and anything to help you, but also the one that's going to deliver, you know, tough love. And I think uh, tough love is not my middle name, but that's something that I hear a lot <laughs> from my founders about characterizing the, the kind of work I do with them. But yeah, I'm, you know, I enjoy what I'm doing and I enjoy interacting with people in our industry. So I'm, I'm very fluttered that um, they sort of think I'm, um, I'm sort of a, uh, a good person. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show. And this has been Jeff Clavier with Soft Tech VC on the Venture Forth podcast.
you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the VentureForth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also follow at VentureForthPod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the VentureForth podcast.